have your Bibles, if you would turn with me to Matthew chapter number 6 this morning. Matthew chapter 6 is our text, and we're going to read verse 9 down to verse 13. And if you would stand and we'll honor the Word of God, and we're going to read that passage. If you would read along with me as we work through Matthew 6, verse 9 through 13. would love to have this portion of Scripture, which many have already memorized, be something that you have in your heart that you could recall by way of memory. Matthew 6, verse 9, if you would read along with me. After this manner, therefore, pray ye, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Father, we are so blessed beyond words to come into your presence through prayer. We thank you that the veil was torn, that access to your presence is made available through the blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray that as we examine this great passage of Scripture, that we would understand that this model prayer that our Lord gave is so rich with meaning and truth that we are to hang our own prayers and thoughts upon, but that we would grow in our prayer life, that we would seek you early and often, that God, that you would move in Lighthouse in such a powerful way, be with the families that are here today, bless those that are physically in attendance as well as those watching online. We pray that the hand of God would move in our midst. We, God, we pray that you would bring a revival of prayer into our hearts, into our church, and that we would be known as a praying church and a praying people. Allow fathers and mothers and children and grandparents to be more in prayer and may you help us to grow in this area. Lord, I pray that anyone today that doesn't know the Lord Jesus Christ, that today they might come and trust in you, the only hope of salvation. We praise you and ask it in Jesus' name and God's people said, Amen. You may be seated this morning. It's 2,000 years ago that the intimate presence of God dwelled inside of what was known as the Holy of Holies or the Most Holy Place. And inside of that 15 foot by 15 foot area where the mercy seat was and God's presence would descend down upon that mercy seat that the two cherubim would overshadow, it let everyone know that the presence of God was unavailable while the veil was still hanging between that Holy of Holies and the outer courts of the most holy place as, as the outer veil would separate people from that presence of God. And, and it was only through the death of Christ and the blood that was shed, the perfect sacrifice that was made, that that four-inch thick gorgeous veil was torn from, the Bible says, top to bottom. And it let us know that the way into the holy place was now available, that this avenue of prayer was made possible through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this morning we return to that inner veil, if you would. We come to the Holy of Holies. We speak of this subject, this most important topic we've been dealing with, which is prayer. And I'm so thankful that this has been a season of preaching upon prayer. But I found through the years that those who do not practice what is preached find themselves fatigued by the messages. For example, if I do a month-long series on sharing the gospel, the ones who say, can you preach on something other than evangelism, are usually the ones who have a dried-up evangelistic life. No one who faithfully shares the gospel wants you to stop preaching on evangelism. When 
when, a, when you do a series on missions, the ones who say, can we change the subject and preach on something more practical about my personal life, are the ones who are not faithful in praying for missions, giving to missions, and, and, and yearning for the gospel to go worldwide. So it is with those who say, why preach on prayer? We get it already. We need to pray more and do it more diligently. They will be the first ones who need another sermon on prayer. These are the ones who have a dried up prayer life. And I'm not sure that you could have gotten through a sermon in the early church without preaching on prayer. It was such of preeminence in the early church. One man said a church is never more like the New Testament church than when it is praying. If you have your Bibles, you can flip over to the book of Acts for just a moment. Acts chapter 1, the Lord gives some final instructions to the disciples before he ascends into heaven. They all return to Jerusalem. This is a 40 This is after 40 days that Christ had walked with them after he had resurrected from the dead. 40 days after Christ had been crucified. And you would consider after Jesus ascends into heaven and leaves the disciples, and there's about 120 in this upper room. At this point, you would think perhaps they're strategizing on how to get the gospel to the world without dying. Maybe they're they're thinking about and strategizing how could we care for our families, the financial needs. I know a lot of the workplaces in that day were not allowing people to work for them if they were identified as those who were followers of the way or of the Christian faith. There's a lot of things they could have been strategizing, a lot of things they could have been doing. But what they are found doing in Acts chapter 1 verse 14 is this. It says, these all continued with one accord in prayer. And supplication, which is praying for others, with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brethren. Notice, first of all, there is a corporate praying that's happening here. They were all praying together, not one or two, but all of them. I find this to be something that is missing in most churches and even many times in our church here. The early church would not have understood a lack of corporate praying. Prayer was integrated into the very essence of what it was to be Christian. They prayed with one accord or one purpose and one mind. They they were unified in prayer. Instead of trying to figure things out themselves, they were taking their weaknesses and leaning on them upon the omnipotence of God. Then in Acts chapter 1 verse 15 through 23, they were discussing how they were to replace uh, Judas, who was one of the twelve disciples who had died and killed himself. And, and how do they find out who the next, uh, the, the 12th disciple should be? Acts one twenty four says, And they prayed and said, Thou, Lord, which knowest the hearts of all men, show whether of these two thou hast chosen. And, and they turn again to God in prayer. They're not, they're not taking a vote on this. They're not saying which of us are the wisest. They're letting the Holy Spirit of God lead them. And they go to God in prayer. Then in Acts 2, the day of Pentecost comes. Verse 1 in Acts chapter number 2 says they were gathered with one accord and in one place. The question is, what would they be doing together in that place as they're gathered together? Well, they would have been doing what the Bible tells us they were doing before in one place, in one accord. They were praying. And after 3,000 souls are saved in Acts chapter 2 verse 41, what do they continue to do according to Acts 2 42? It says they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, that's the word of God, and fellowship, being together, breaking bread, which I believe speaks about the Lord's Supper, and in prayers. Prayer was a central part of what they did together. Acts 2.46 says they were daily with one accord in the temple. And the question is, what were they doing in the temple? 
Acts 3 verse 1 tells us. Now Peter and John went up together into the temple. It says, at the hour of what? Prayer. And, and it says, being the ninth hour. One thing they were doing is praying in the temple, which would not have been the most comfortable place to pray, because that's where 50 days prior, Jesus Christ had been crucified in that same town, or been a couple months before that. And so they're, they're, they're subjecting themselves publicly to a faith in the Lord Jesus Christ in a place where they could have clearly been persecuted, as comes later in Acts 4 and 5. Now the disciples had a set time to pray. The hour of prayer was the ninth hour, which is actually 3 in the afternoon, 3 p.m. They gathered together. I doubt very few of us this week said at 3 o'clock, I'm going to set an hour aside and call it the hour of prayer to spend time praying. But this is something that the Jews did, and it bled over into the church. Taking time to pray, the disciples prayed together. Let me ask you, when's the last time you prayed with someone from Lighthouse? When's the last time that you got together with Christians in the church and prayed? And and I know many of you do that, and that needs to be a regular thing in our life. If you say, well, I've been a part of Lighthouse now for many months or even years, and and I don't know that if I've prayed with any other Christians at Lighthouse, then, then you're missing out on something that we do here and that God calls us to do. You say, well, I'm not even comfortable praying with other people. Then you're not understanding what it means to literally be Christian. What it means to be Christian is not to isolate our faith from other believers, but to integrate our life into the body of Christ and to go out into the world and preach the gospel. No one's ever felt comfortable sharing the gospel. You just do it. Right? You you, you go and you do these things, and, and, and we as a church must be a praying church, lifting up one another. Every Wednesday night we come together, we have a preaching time, but then we gather in small groups and pray. You need to be a part of that. In Acts 4, Peter and John are threatened to not preach anymore. They're released by the authorities. In Acts 4.23, what do they do by the next verse? Acts 4.24 says, when they heard that, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, Thou art God which has made heaven and earth to see and all that in them is. You know, if this last week Tom or Mike or, or different ones in the church were thrown into prison, their life was threatened, I can tell you we'd spend a little bit more time in prayer. We just say, dear God, there's, there's people in our church that their lives are being threatened or they're being imprisoned. God, be with them. We would be diligent about that. We need to be a church that is filled with voices lifted up to God in corporate prayer. In Acts chapter 6, there was a problem that rose up in the church because whenever, anytime a church grows, there's always problems that arise and, and, and they neglected the widows. Some of the widows were being neglected from the daily uh, care, the ministration, the Bible says. And, uh, and, and so they gathered some men that could oversee that. And listen to what Peter says was a priority for him and the spiritual leaders of the church. It says in Acts 6-4, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. We need to be people who faithfully pray. Listen, this, has been, this is what the early church elevated as one of the most important things that they would do. After six sermons on Sundays, after a month and a half of preaching on prayer... If in your personal life you've not been challenged, motivated, or increasing your prayer in some way, it is a very big danger that you're filled with a hard heart or a dry spirit or some problems going on. How on earth could I hear the Word of God being preached, challenged for six weeks and it not affect my prayer life? The Bible tells us there is a great danger of becoming a 
mechanical type of Christian, one who honors God with our lips, but our heart is far from Him. As simply as I can put it, friends, what we do with prayer is exactly what we've done with God. You cannot separate them. You cannot say, I love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength and have a dry prayer life. Impossible. Prayer reflects what you've done with God. And our church collectively, it just... Sometimes I think, should I just stop preaching and we just spend time in prayer? But the Bible also elevates the importance of heralding the Word of God. And so we must understand this is so important for us. Because God is the center of prayer. What you and I do with prayer is what we've done with Him. The early church had a burning hot prayer life. They were people of prayer because they were people who loved God I'm so thankful for your faithfulness. Every week we have new visitors. Every week we see church filled with people. I had a dear lady who came to the early service and she said, I didn't come to Lighthouse for so long because I, I just thought, can I even fit in there? They're always packed full with cars and stuff like that. And, and so it was a supernatural thing that happened this last week for all this time wanting to come. And, and God intertwined her life with somebody who called at a doctor's office and God put together a, a, a divine connection there to where the conversation turned to church and inviting them out and they came. And, and just even today, another dear lady that I saw who's been coming to Lighthouse and I got to meet her at, a, at, at the hospital and, uh, and, and I was like the second of three people that would end up talking to her, inviting her to Lighthouse. She's like, I just need to come, you know. And uh, what a blessing. What a blessing to know that God loves you so much that He's drawing you and using people to speak into your life. And, and, and you know, a lot of times that happens through praying. Praying and saying, God, give me somebody that I could reach. Give me somebody that I can talk to. But I would say thank you for your faithfulness to church. But not only would we be faithful to church, but that we would be faithful to prayer. And let me give you some thoughts on this. First, be faithful to prayer in your own personal life. If you're not faithfully praying as an individual, I would encourage you to set 10 minutes aside. I challenged this several weeks ago. I believe God's worth at least a snooze length of time. Anybody with me this morning? Is God worth that? So let's say, you know what, God, I want to I take at least, if, if I'm not, don't get radical and say, I'm going to get up and spend an hour in prayer and fasting every day. For, you know. If you do that, that, I'm not saying that's wrong, but I'm just saying, let's, let's start, start walking before you run, okay? And so, so just say, I'm going I'm to take 10 minutes and, and get up, and I've, I'm not reading and praying faithfully in the morning. And I would say the morning is, the, is a priority to do this. If you do it at night, great, keep doing that. But at least give God some early time. And so when you wake up, whatever time that would be, that you would get up and say, I'm going to set aside a little bit of time, at least 10 minutes to where I read at least one chapter and spend at least five minutes in prayer. And you say, I don't know how to even pray for five minutes. Come this Wednesday and you will learn how. I did a part one, basically, of how to, how to pray with the Scriptures. This, this Wednesday is going to be a very extremely practical message. I'm going to teach from the floor and field questions from the congregation about how to put together a prayer journal. I want to walk you through how you can increase your prayer life. And I can tell you, you begin to build a prayer journal, you'll say, I don't even know how to not pray for less. I don't know how to pray for... I couldn't finish it in five minutes. I mean, it just continues on. There's, there's so much to pray for. And, and you'll build your prayer life. It'll increase your life. It'll bless your family in such marvelous ways. But do that for 30 days, 10 minutes a day for 30 days. Then, then the next month, say, I'm going to bump that up to 12 minutes or 13 minutes or 15 minutes. And then next month, go to 16 minutes and then 17 minutes. And just, just begin to have some goals in your life. You know what, God, I want to continue to grow in this. Grow in your prayer life personally. Then grow with your family in prayer. 
Our, our, our family discipleship group, our, what we call the D groups in our church, you guys have heard me talk about this over the years. There's nothing that's blessed my family more than that uh, in the sense of, of individual growth and coming together. Uh, but if you're not part of D groups, we're going to be launching those back in January again this next year. And, and uh, it's just such an incredible way to see your family grow. I've seen all of my kids grow in the Word of God and prayer. And, uh, but take time praying with your family. Come to this altar and take a moment and pray with your family. Pray at your seat together. You could, at the end of service, when we're praying at the altar, or whether you're at the altar or at your seat, you could take the hand of your, your child or your, your parent or your wife or your husband and say, let's just take a moment and pray right here and, and pray for one another. Pray for your family. And then with your church family, learn to pray with your church family. If you come to the early service at 8 o'clock, we pray over in room 107. But if you come to the late service, come and pray at the altar for a few minutes before service starts. In life groups, take the last few minutes of the time to pray together. Wednesday nights, we preach a sermon and we teach a sermon. And then at the end of that, we break up in groups of two, three, four, five, or six and pray together. You say, well, I'm just not comfortable praying with other Christians. Then what do you think, the, what do you think it means to be a Christian? That, that you wouldn't be comfortable talking to God with other believers? You say, I'm not comfortable doing that. Then get past that. I don't know how else to say it. You just got to get over that. Listen. If, if, you're gonna, if, if you're a doctor, you're going to work in the ER, and he's like, you know what, I feel uncomfortable working with patients that are sick. <laughs> right? Well, sir, you're going to have to get past that. We're going to have to work through this blood fear, right? I mean, they're, they're, the world's sick, dying and going to hell. On our own, we may be saved, but we still have some things we're sick about, right? And, and we need the encouragement, the prayers. One of the greatest joys I have is on Wednesdays is to sit down with new couples every week or new people and say, uh, what are some prayer requests? We share them together. And I say, can you please pray for me about this? And, and I'll pray for you. And we share prayer requests. We pray for each other. And every person who's ever said, you know, I'm not sure I know how to pray. They always know how to pray. You know why? Because they start talking and God hears and we go forward. So don't worry about what you say. Listen, some of the most sincere people, the greatest prayers are from those who don't know how to pray. And so just come and say, God, I'm going to come and I don't really know how to do this, but, but Lord, be with this situation in Jesus' name, amen. And praise God, then start somewhere and grow in that. And just, you'll never go where you would want to be if you don't start where you are. You've got to continue to grow in that process. And, and I can tell you, for me, it's a blessing beyond measure. I am so edified by people who are afraid to pray, who are willing to pray, more so than people who've had great experience in that area of growth. Because I see their desire to grow, and their desire to grow promotes my growth. <clears throat> and so, so every time, listen, I, I think every week in our lives, God should make our hands a little sweaty at some point. If your hands haven't been sweaty, if, you've not, if God's not caused you to have some rapid heartbeats, and I'm not talking about heart palpitations, but I'm talking about getting a little bit more nervousness in your life because you follow Jesus, you're not following Him close enough. Jesus should make you nervous. He should put a little stress on your life at times. You say, Lord, you really want me? To? Yeah, I want you to go do that. Welcome to Christianity 101, cross-bearing. Welcome to getting out of our comfort zone and off of a three-inch lumbar support backing chair inside of a church with armrest. This is, this is getting out and beginning to live the Christian life in ways that, that God wants us to. And, and one of those is in our prayer life. We need to grow in our prayer life as a church. But today we come to verse 11, and maybe that is an introduction to the introduction. 
Here in verse 11 is the fourth of six different requests Jesus tells us to make as we come in prayer. This is of such utmost importance that we're going to look through this in patience through today. Verse number 11. But the first three requests we've already looked at in verse 9 and 10. And then verse 11 through 13 give us the second set of three requests. So there's six, six total requests Jesus highlights in these five verses. The first three requests have to do with God. The next three have to do with our life. So we see the first request was uh, when you come to God in prayer, he says, say, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, that we would come and, and, and we would see God as our Father, but we would seek to hallow his name, to exalt his name, that he is to be lifted up and worshiped. That, that's the first request that we have, that God's name would be exalted. The second request is that God's will would, God's kingdom would come. Christ will one day set his kingdom up on earth, but before then, he sets his kingdom up in the hearts of men. So when we pray, let your kingdom come, we are praying ultimately, let your rule come. Bring salvation to the lost and bring sanctification to the saved would be how you could say that. And the third request is that thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What that means is prayer is not about us getting our will. Prayer is about us coming and surrendering our will to God's will. Listen, in my prayers, it's in your prayers, we're not praying, God, let my kingdom come and my will be done, but let your kingdom come and will be done. So prayer is us lining our wills up with God's will. Now, the second set of requests, once we get right vertically, then we can understand life horizontally. And our personal lives and prayer requests will be purified through an exalted view of God. And these last three requests have to do uh, with, first of all, the provision God would give us in verse number 11, the forgiveness we need for salvation in verse 12 and, and sanctification. And then in verse 13 is the protection we need both spiritually as well as physically. And notice these are not lavish requests. We're not asking God for some great lavish Lamborghini here, but we are asking God to provide us physical resources to live, spiritual forgiveness that we could be saved, and spiritual protection that we would be able to serve God without being defeated by the enemy. So let's look at this first request, which is give us this day our daily bread. Now, I want to look first of all at the provider who is God. This is the prayer of the believer. This is a believer's prayer. And you need to understand that God has obligated himself through scripture to provide for you. And what an incredible blessing it is that God would provide for us. Psalm 37 verse 3 and 4 says, Trust in the Lord and do good, so shalt thou dwell in the land, and verily thou shalt be fed. Delight thyself also in the Lord, and he shall give thee desires of thy heart. Psalms 37, 25, David goes on to say, I have been young and now I am old, yet have I not seen the righteous forsaken nor his seed begging bread. Provision is going to be there for those who are children of God who seek him. Just in Matthew 6, verse 31, he gives us these wonderful words. Jesus says, therefore, take no thought, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or uh, what shall we, wherewithal shall we be clothed? He says, for after all these things do the Gentiles seek. That's what, that's what lost people would seek after is what he's saying. For your heavenly Father knoweth you have need of all these things. He says, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. God will take care of the physical if you just focus on the spiritual. What a blessing that is, amen? There are people who miss out on the spiritual of life because they get so focused on the physical and the joy is for a faithful believer is when you focus on the spiritual, he throws in the physical on top. 
And so not only do you get the best spiritually, but you get cared for by God physically. The reason many parts of the world, you need to understand this, struggle to provide enough food for their people is not because of poor economic decisions, which they're there, not because of poor governmental decisions, nor poor scientific or agricultural practices. Rather, the reason that many countries struggle to take care of their own people with food is because of a theological problem. False theology creates a false philosophy. It creates a false system of life, government, and a society to live in. The truth is, there is not a major area of the world that is not capable with proper technology of providing enough food to sustain its own people. In fact, for the past two decades, the rate of global food production has increased faster than the rate of global population. And if you've not been noticing, we have been on a population explosion since about 1900. According to the United Nations Food and Agricultural Organization, the FAO, the world produces currently one and a half times enough food to feed a planet of 10 billion people, which they estimate the population will be by 2050. We have more than enough, 1.5 times enough food to feed even 10 billion people right now. And I believe that the poverty in places such as India can be laid at the feet of the false religion of Hinduism, which also spawned many other religions, Buddhism, Jainism, and others. Hinduism believes in the reincarnation of people's souls as they journey toward what's called moksha. Moksha, also known as muktai, is a Hindu term used for the liberation of the soul from karma. For the Hindu, the chief aim of existence is to be freed from the samsara or the endless cycle of births and rebirths and that reincarnation process. Heaven to the Hindu is the ability to be released from that endless cycle and the exalted place where they would call it nirvana, that final stage. Hindus believe people go through countless and even unending cycles of reincarnation in both animal as well as human form. As the person does good, they work themselves into higher forms, and by doing bad, they begin to regress into lower forms. To the Hindu, then, poverty, disease, and starvation are seen as the divine punishment for those persons involved, and they must do penance in their current form and current state to increase to the higher form. Therefore, inside of Hinduism, to help a person in poverty or sickness is to interfere with karma and to do the person's spiritual harm. This is very much like what Judaism did when somebody came down with um, some kind of sickness. They saw it as a direct strike from the hand of God and they would lack mercy upon certain people. But all the animals there also in India are considered to be incarnations of either men or deities. Cows are held to be especially sacred. It's where we get the statement sacred cow from. And in India, there's over 300 million cows India is the only country in the world that actually has a bill of rights for their cows. And, 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 and rightfully so, we may giggle at that, but you need to understand that has caused detriment that is, is hard to even grasp there in India. Not only will they not eat cows because it's illegal to eat a cow, you could face years in prison, but the cows there consume 20% of India's total food supply. Others' cows go through fields freely, destroying crops. Even the rats and mice are protected in India, which mice and rats consume 15% of their resources. This pagan belief of cows, you need to understand, being sacred and near deity, comes back to Satan's aim 
and dismantling the Jewish people. Do you remember when Moses went up on the mountain for 40 days with the Lord after he took the people of Israel out of Egypt? They come to Mount Sinai. Moses goes up to to meet God on the mountain and God's going to give him the Ten Commandments. While he's up there for 40 days, some of the people get restless and they say, oh, we don't know what happened to Moses. We need a leader. We need someone to lead us. And so uh, they threw all their gold together and Aaron carved out a golden what? Calf for them. And Exodus 32 verse 4 and 5 records it. It says, And he received them at their hand and fashioned it with a graven tool after he made it a molten calf. And they said, These be thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. Notice what happens in verse 5 because this is it. You would think at this point they abandoned the true God. No, 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 no. What they wanted to do was mix this image with the true God. Verse 5, and when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it, the golden calf, and Aaron made proclamation and said, tomorrow is a feast to Yahweh. What a joke. What a delusional statement. You think you're going to have a feast to the Lord and there's a golden calf as his image? This This is what world religion does, isn't it? And and so when you hear people like Oprah Winfrey who says, you know, we all worship one God, the God of the Jews and the Buddhists and the Hindus and the Muslims and the Christian. It's all the same God and we just need to come together and realize we all use different definitions, but it's the same God we're talking about. That is a complete demonic lie. If that were true, then God would be accepting of this golden calf, right? But look what happens in Exodus 32, 7. And the Lord said unto Moses, Go get thee down, for thy people which thou brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. And he goes on and says, They've made a molten calf and worshipped it. And God says, I'm ready to destroy them all. Sincerity does not equal truth. You can say, oh, I, I just love God. And I'm gonna... Okay, God is not the God of your understanding. God is the God of the Word. He, God defines who He is. Man doesn't define God. God defines God. Amen? Amen. There are some pagan ideologies in the world that want you to think that man can come up with the idea of God in their own heart. That is a false lie. That is not true. God declared what they did was corrupt. When I was in Caesarea Philippi... In uh, 2011, they have a large rock mountain there. And, and it's on that rock mountain that underneath there, there is a place where they used to uh, offer sacrifices to a god called Pan. He was known as the god of the underworld. And there was a, there's a stream, a river that like flows up out of the ground and out of there. And, and it's, it's a unique place because you, you could throw stuff in there and it could go down or come up and... And and a couple thousand years ago, they would take animals and and even people sacrifices and throw them to the god Pan. And if it went into the water and and was received down into that that water area uh, underneath the mountain, then then the god accepted your sacrifice. But if it spewed it out, then he rejected it. You know what they called that place? They called it the gates of hell. And Jesus stood upon that rock and he says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. This false, demonic, worldly system will not overcome the church. And do you know at the foot of that mountain, by that place of sacrifice, they had cemeteries, not for people, but for goats. Because they glorified goats. 
And what you find in all these false pagan religions is they elify, elevate animals. Do you know in India they have retirement homes for cows but not for the elderly? In 2019, they were coming out with retirement homes where Gopal Ray, the development minister of the government of Delhi in India, said this, we are now planning a unique coexistence where the elderly will be able to stay now with the cows. So they're now bringing people up to the level to where they can now stay with some of the cows. False theology has been the greatest plagues on places like Africa and India and other parts of the world. It is the Christian teaching that has been the root of prosperity for Europe and the United States. John MacArthur rightly observes the great concerns for human rights, care for the poor, orphanages, hospitals, prison reform, racial and slave reform, and a host of other concerns did not come from paganism or humanism, but from biblical Christianity. And that is the truth. We saw groups in the last few years like Black Lives Matter rise up. Do you think they helped any black person in the United States? Absolutely not. That pagan group that was born from three homosexual women who are now living in million dollar mansions in the cities that were burned down. You know who's suffering? It's the poor black communities that are suffering. Those people used black people in this country to ruin them and to build up their own finances. That is as disgusting a thing as anything you will ever see in this nation. And I stood up on day one when that came out and preached against it. That's the truth. And you know, while America was burning in those days, every color and every person in our church, we had great unity. There was no division. There was no racial tension at Lighthouse. Praise God. Amen. Because melon doesn't divide us. Amen. It's the gospel that brought us together. I mean, we have cops and robbers that come together in this church. Amen. I could continue on about that statement, but we won't. Do you know, you know today uh, slavery is rampant? You know where most slavery happens today? Millions of people are enslaved. I believe it's closer to like a half million people are enslaved or 500 million people enslaved. In India and in Africa. That's where, that's where the leading areas of slavery are right now. Millions of people enslaved. You know where they're not enslaved? In the United States. In Europe. Praise God for that. Amen. Amen. And so today in America, we, we need to step back and say, you know what? Uh, uh, news media and politicians, we don't believe you, but we believe the word of God. We believe that Christianity is the foundation for why uh, all these blessings have come. You go into humanistic ideologies and you see today in America how, how many, of these, many of these states and cities are enslaving their own people. Go out to the West Coast. Well, don't go out to the West Coast. We've had several people who, who have moved here from the West Coast. I say, how did you like it out there? They're like, I can't stand it. And they would tell me, and it's true because I've seen it as well through media, but they've seen it through their own eyes. You know, in, 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 in places like San Diego and Sacramento and, and, and you go to Los Angeles or, or some of these cities uh, out west, just filled with drugs, homelessness, and just rampant everywhere. And, and they're, they're enslaving their own people. You know why? Because they, they allow drugs to go on. They, they, they even give them drugs. Uh, they allow them to live in tents all over the streets. There's 161,000 people on any given day homeless in California alone where they have so much. 
Tell you what, friends, we need to come back to the truth of God's Word. It is a nation that has fallen away from the Word of God, and the the cities and the leaders who have fallen away from the Word of God are the ones who are creating the greatest pandemic of homelessness and hurting the people the worst. People like Gavin Newsom are now quoting Jesus while he's promoting abortion in the United States. Gavin Newsom is probably the worst governor in the country is putting out billboards across the United States quoting the words of Christ to love your neighbor as yourself being the reason why you should allow people to have abortions. Now they're using the word of God for murder. And God says in the Old Testament, who are you to speak my words? That's what he said to the pagans. Who are you to speak my words? You want to see God's judgment fall on a land? You take people like different leaders in our nation quoting the word of God while they murder God's children. That is an evil that that is hard to be understood. (laughs) Blindness beyond measure. Now let me transition before I go there too long. I want, to, I want to transition to an important question. Does, does this mean that God automatically provides for Christians no matter what that Christian does? So if you're a Christian, as long as you're a Christian, God's going to provide for all your needs. And the answer to that is no. God will provide for our needs. And pri- the primary way He does that is through giving us health, the ability to work, and opportunities. Ecclesiastes 3.13 says, And also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all his labor. It is the gift of God. Let me give you three reasons God will not provide for a believer. Because, friends, you need to know God wants to care for you. He and He will. But here's three things that will hold God back from providing. First of all is laziness. 2 Thessalonians 3.10 says, for, Paul says this, For even when we were with you, this we commanded you. And Paul was so great. He was so giving to the poor that he traveled hundreds and hundreds of miles to get money to bring it back to the poor people in Jerusalem. I mean, this is a guy who put his life on the line to care for people in need. And he says, we commanded you that if any would not work, neither should he what? So if a person doesn't willing to work, what does God say? Don't, they're, they're not going to be eating. A part of the curse was the ground would now have to be cultivated and produced, and it would be hard work. God said in Genesis 3.19, In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread. We live in a day when many people don't want to work hard, and some don't want to work at all. Some people in this country are in poverty, not because it's, things are not available to them, but because they don't want to take the opportunities in front of them. I've had more people in the last two years, business owners, come to me because I'm a pastor and they know there's a lot of people in this church that they they say, hey, if you know any people in church that need work, let me know because we're hiring. I've had more people two days ago on Friday, I had two business owners who said, "Uh, we can't find anybody to work. Just yesterday, I had somebody send me a message and say, hey, our company's hiring at $15 an hour starting out. We'll do all the training. They don't need anything. Just if there's any men you know that need work, let them, let them come to us. So today, if you need work, let me know. And they said, we'll, we'll start them out $15 an hour. They said, we can't find anybody to work. <laughs> I think, boy, if I could have made $15 an hour back in the day growing up, good night. Listen, if you're willing to work, there are countless companies willing to pay you. It bothers me to hear people complain in our country when we are throwing away more than what other countries have. 
God tells us laziness will bring poverty. Proverbs 13, 4 says, The soul of the sluggard desireth and hath nothing, but the soul of the diligent shall be made fat. Proverbs 20, verse 4, The soul or the sluggard will not plow by reason of the cold. You know what? He doesn't want to put his gloves on. He doesn't want to go out and work because it's cold. And guess what he's going to do? God says, Therefore shall he beg and harvest and have nothing. Proverbs 21, 25, the desire of the slothful killeth him, for his hands refuseth to labor. Listen, I know that sometimes people can hit a hard patch. I'm not being insensitive. I mean, we've helped a lot of people throughout the years. But I can tell you there's a lot of people that are just not willing to do anything. God will not provide the needs of a lazy Christian. God doesn't reward laziness. Rather, He calls us to diligent work ethic. Secondly, people who... God will not provide for or those who spend their money foolishly. Unbiblical and unwise decisions with your money lead to financial slavery. Proverbs 22, 7 says, The rich rules over the poor, the borrower is servant to the lender. We live in a day where people have turned wants into needs. Let, let, me, let me just do a quick rabbit trail on this. Um, before I even get into that thought, I think it would be wise for if you're in earshot of, of me, to not spend all of your money. Learn to have money put aside. I don't think America's best days are in front of it right now. That's what I'm trying to say. There have been some who've had concern that we're going to run out of diesel fuel potentially by the end of the year. We, we are worried about <laughs> transgenderism in our country and we are not even providing resources for the people. This is the insanity of a nation that's been given over to blindness and judgment from God. What I'm trying to say is in the Old Testament, Joseph, God said, there is judgment coming. There's going to be seven years of plenty and then seven years of fasting and drought. Make sure that you don't live in a place where you don't have anything saved up or set aside. You should have three to six months living expenses set aside. You should, and if you say, there's no way that could happen, I can tell you there is. You start living a needs-based life and not a once-fulfilling life and you will be taken care of. Don't stretch yourself so thin that if gas prices went from three fifty to six or seven dollars, that you could not live. So, so let me talk about this. Uh, I need electricity. I don't need cable. I haven't had cable for probably seventeen, eighteen years. You can have cable. There's nothing wrong with that. But you, if you can't pay your electric bill and you come to me and say you need help getting paid and you have cable, I will not give you it because I love you too much. I need water, but I don't need coffee from Tim Hortons every day. Let me say this. I don't even need energy drinks every day. Oh, preacher, don't go there. Bust on Tim Horton, but don't get on my energy drink. If you have money to spend on energy drinks and, and buying coffee, I don't even remember the last, and I, I, I don't even want to compare myself to this, but it's just not wise. I need To pay my house payment, I don't need the newest cell phone, new furniture, extra landscaping, newest styles of clothing. I need groceries. I don't need to smoke cigarettes. If you can't pay your bills, are you spending money on things you want instead of what you need? When a person spends their need money on their wants, they will be impoverished. And I don't care how much you give a person, they'll still end up the same way. 19 years ago, when I helped my brother start a church in Chillicothe, I remember before I moved there, God had blessed me with a great job. And any time in my life I found myself making more than I needed, it was always for a reason, every single time. 
I was making over $1,000 extra a month while in college, while going to school, working part-time, and paying my bills. I was like, this is fantastic. He's blessed us with such good jobs and, and making all this money. You know why? So that when I moved to help my brother start a church, I could have money to pay down on a house and become poor again. <laughs> so, but then I, I remember looking everywhere. I couldn't find a job. Only thing I could find in Chillicothe, the economy was rough, was an eight and a half dollar an hour factory job. So I took that. My wife was working at four in the morning at, at Burger King. I had a college degree. I could have gone and worked in different churches, but instead I felt God called me to start it, help him start a church, and so we started back at ground level. And, uh, and, and guys would ask me, why are you working here, man? You got a college degree. I said, this is where God has me. And, uh, and sometimes you got to go through the wilderness first. Sometimes there's some dry seasons. And so once she had a child, she came home, and all we were making was $8.5 an hour, an hour. For a family with a house and, and God, you know, but you know what? Through that, through that time in my life, for about a year and a half, two years of that season, I never missed a payment, never borrowed money, always tithed, always gave extra to missions and building. God always provided, he prov- there was not one need I ever needed, never paid anything late, never put anything on a credit card, never did any of that. But you know what I didn't do? I never ate out. I didn't have that want money. I remember times guys would come up to me after church because our church was growing there, it was thriving like it did here. And guys would come to me and, and they would say, hey, you want to go out to eat with us? This happened like every Sunday night. I'm like, man, I wish, I would try to get away from them so they wouldn't ask me. But I, I didn't have the money. I'm like, I would love to go eat out, eat some pizza with you guys, you know, but I wouldn't say anything. I would just, oh, no, that's okay. When you get home, you know, it's late. And, and, uh, and then I remember, and I'm not, and then I, I, I'm, God's honest truth, I never stopped one time to buy a drink a coffee, a candy bar. I never, never did any of that. I would pack my little brown bag and go to work and work and every one of my needs were met. And you know what God did? He took that eight and a half dollars an hour to turn it into $5,000 a week job within a couple years because until I could be faithful with very little, I would never be faithful with much. Amen. And I'm telling you, friends, you have to learn to have nothing. You have to learn that man doesn't live by bread only, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. So that when I came here to Xenia, and we had nothing. And we started and we, we moved into this old grocery store that was a wreck. You would not have known it if you came here back then. And I remember back then we didn't have money for supplies. And, 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 and Sears donated all the lights over on the other side to us. And we put all those up labor on our own heads. We did all of that. And we didn't have money for a carpet on the stage. So I preached on a wooden platform for over a year. And we didn't have money for drywall. So there was a Lowe's down toward Kentucky that had a bunch of broken drywall. And we took that drywall and we hung it. And we worked our tails off. And we finished that ourselves. And we did all of that because we had nothing. But God met the needs. And he kept providing for all of the needs. And I remember coming to an altar and putting all the bills down on the altar and say, Dear God, you're going to have to cover these things because I, I don't know what else I can pinch down on. This is a needs-based ministry. And I remember people coming to church and saying, Yeah, why don't you put some decorations around your columns out here? And, you know, you got four by four inch columns. And I'm thinking, you don't even understand what a church plan is. And I'd have to hold all that in. and like, But, but we're running on needs right now as back then was it was. Now it's got some pretty nice little decorations around it, and we even put some nice little pumpkins out there, mums. But you don't always live in that world. And until you can learn to be faithful with little, you'll never be faithful with much. And today, parents, sometimes we give our kids so much that they don't even understand the concept of the value of a dollar. Don't pay for your kids' cars. 
Well, I've already done. Well, I can tell you, you, you pay for the, the total. Of, I'm not saying you can't help them. I'm not saying you can't give them some, some help there. Make them work for that. The majority of that they should work for. But I can tell you, every car that's paid for totally by a parent, that kid will not take care of it like they would have. I paid, I paid, I had a Chevy Spectrum, my first car. You know what Chevy Spectrum is? I can't fit in a Chevy Spectrum. But it's the only thing I could afford. And I bought it off my dad for $700. I tore the front seat out, sat in the back. Almost. But I remember I, I had that car. I was the only kid in the, in the world that, that, that I, 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 I cleaned that outside. I even waxed it. I whacked, I called it the silver bullet. It was just a tiny little car. I mean, it looked like a rabbit or something. And, and my buddies, I remember picking my buddies up to take them to practice. And, and uh, they were eating something in the back. I said, don't get nothing on my back seat. Like, man, a little, little Chevy Spectrum. I said, you get some, I'm going to rip your arms off and clean the back out with it. You know what I mean, I, I was cared about that. You know why? Because I had invested money in it. When you, when you put your money in, and you, you, you appreciate that. And God calls us to work hard, to, to appreciate these things, not to be lazy, not to take things for granted. God will not provide for a lazy Christian or one who spends money foolishly because you're using your need money on your wants. Thirdly, God will not provide for people who live in unrepentant sin. God will not provide for an unrepentant prodigal son. And it's not that the father couldn't have provided for the prodigal son. It's that the prodigal son had removed himself from the blessing of the father, didn't he? He had gotten so far away from the blessings of the Father, but when he repented and came home, those blessings returned. And today, friend, that's where God is. He loves to provide. He rejoices in that. God will provide for you. And Ephesians 4.28 tells us God will not only provide so much for you, but listen to this verse. He says, let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor working with his hands the thing which is good that he may have to give to him that needeth. Not only will God give you enough, but he'll give you enough to care for others who are in need. You'll be provided for so much so that you'll have enough to help others. I think, I think we live in a day where all of us Christians, uh, our problem is not uh, God give me my daily bread, but God don't let me overeat. And so we need to say, God, let me take some of that leftovers in my pocket and put some, put some resources in my pocket. And God, give me somebody maybe in this week that would be in need and that you would allow me to be able to minister to, to care for, to provide for somebody else's need that, that I may come across. So we see the provider who is God. Then we see the provision. He says, give us this day our daily bread. What is this bread? To be quite honest, most of us would not be content with bread, right? I know every time I go out to eat, I'm always like, you got honey? In in some of these restaurants, I know they got honey because I've asked it 50,000 times. Because I don't want to eat just bread. Maybe you're content with bread. I'm not. Okay? (laughs) I'm going to take God's resources and use them to the fullest, baby. Give me that honey. I know it's back there. And don't you be asking for honey at Longhorn because they have just so much supply. So I don't want you to use it up. Let your pastor have some, right? But bread here symbolizes not just physical bread, but the physical care of our life. This includes shelter, clothing, health, uh, physical needs such as that. And so we are to come to God and, and, and ask for those provisions. Now, again, because of the incredible blessings we have in the country, a lot of us can neglect to pray for this. I would say most of us this week did not say, give us this day our daily bread. You know why? Because we already have it. So here's the danger. Let me give you two dangers of neglecting to pray for our daily physical needs. Two big dangers. And and I want to remind us, this is the first thing Jesus says we need to pray for. First, we can lose appreciation for those things. We can take them for granted. You know the people in this room that appreciate life the most? 
are the ones who came closest to death. You know, the people who appreciate their health the most, the ones who had lost it for a time. And I can tell you, our appreciation is usually in direct equivalence to what we've suffered. The first thing we can do is we can lose appreciation for what God's done. So we need to come to God and say, God, you have provided so much for me. Thank you for the provision. And I know if it wasn't for you, I would never have it. And praise Him. And that brings me, secondly, we can also begin to trust in our own self to provide our things. People say, well, I got everything by the sweat of my own brow. Well, who gave you those lungs, sir? Whose air are you breathing? And so everything we have is from Him, isn't it? So secondly, we can begin to trust ourselves. So by asking God daily provision, lets us first of all thank Him for those provisions, but also realizing it's only from Him that they continue. Thirdly, we see the prayer. He says, give us this day our daily bread. Notice the pronoun there. It's in the plural. Give us this day our daily bread. We're praying um, for God's provision, not only for us, but also for others. We should pray for the provision for others. And there are two words here that we would love to change. I mean, we wouldn't have put them there. We wouldn't say, give us this day our daily bread. I mean, who would pray that? We would say, give us this week or give us this month our monthly bread, right? Who wants to live off the day? I, I want to know that there's at least something in the cabinet or the refrigerator for tomorrow. You have four kids like I do, it's hard to ever find them. I'm like, I know I put a half a steak in there. You know, the worst thing they do, they eat everything except the bone. They go right around the bone, and, they leave, and then they leave the bone in there. And I'm thinking, you sinners. Which, <laughs> come on down here, we're going to have a sermon, you know. Uh, Say, so you miss having your kids move out? No, I can eat all the leftovers, you know, they're for me and my wife, you know. I'm kind of teasing. But in Exodus, this prayer was birthed out of Exodus chapter 14 because in Exodus, they were given daily bread. God began to feed them when they went through the wilderness with daily provision. Exodus 16 verse 3, God intentionally let them go through a season of hunger and thirst. It says, And the children of Israel said unto them, Would to God we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the flesh pots, when we did eat bread to the full. For you brought us out here in the wilderness to kill us, this whole assembly with hunger. So they're thinking, you know, God's taking us out here to kill us with hunger. Yeah, he just took you out of Egypt after ten plagues, crossed the Red Sea by a miracle, wiped out the Egyptian army. And you think he can't feed you? What God's trying to do is to show them to trust him. And he touched their stomach and their thirst to see where their faith was. God touches our physical life sometimes and allows it to reveal where our faith is. Those pressures reflect how we really believe God. Exodus 16, 4, it says, Then said the Lord unto Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a certain rate every day, that I may prove or test them whether they will walk in my law or no. This daily food was a test by God to the Israelites if they would trust Him. And so every day they went out and gathered food. They did this for five days. But you know what would happen? He said, don't keep it overnight. Throw it out every night or else it'll spoil. But you know what they did? They were like, you know what? What if you ate bread and you're like, we don't have cabinets. We don't have cupboards. We don't have refrigerators. We don't have breakfast. So then they're thinking, the only way that I know I'm going to have something to eat if I keep this food. And you're going to tell me to throw this food out? And so they kept it overnight. And every night they did that, it always went bad. And so, and so what you find here is they, th their faith was tested and they had to say, do I trust this bread in my hand to last for breakfast tomorrow more than God's word who said he'll bring me bread tomorrow? 
So they had to learn, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. And you find this coming to pass in Deuteronomy chapter number 8, verse 3. In Deuteronomy 8, verse 3, it says, And he humbled thee, and suffered thee to hunger, and fed thee with manna, which you knew not, neither did your fathers know, that he might make thee know that man doth not live by bread only, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of the Lord doth man live. You remember when Jesus fasted for 40 days? What did Satan test him with? Which turned stone into bread. And Jesus quoted this verse to Satan. Jesus went through this testing. Let me ask you, friend, when you go through physical testing, do you turn to men to rescue you first, or do you turn to God? Who do you turn to first? Oh, my job's really struggling now. You know, and you begin to call all your buddies and call other people and call mentors. Well, those are blessings, but that's a second level recourse. You need to turn to God. When somebody goes through a financial situation, you need, to, you need to, instead of being quick to bail them out, you need to ask them, have you turned to the Lord first? Have you really prayed about this? Because if they haven't gone to God, then you're taking the place of God in their life, and you may be hurting them more than helping them. I think we should be generous and care for people. I know how that works in my own life, and taking care and ministering and blessing people in different ways. But I'm going to tell you something. We need to make sure that we don't step in front of God when people are in need and find out, you know what, they're spending their need money on once. They're not being faithful to work. They're, they're having some unrepentant sin in their life. They're doing wrong things, and they're not showing any sign of repentance about it. Then they need to go hungry for a while, because that's what God allows His own children to do. He allowed the prodigal son to go in a starving situation. He allowed that to happen. I've had people say through the years, I could never let my child sleep on the street. Well, then that's probably why they're in prison today. It's probably why they're still on, because you cannot enable them in their sin. My dad always told me, he said, if you go to prison, boy, he says, I'm not coming to get you. I said, dad, if I go to prison, I don't want you to come to get me. (laughs) Believe me, I want to see you for a long time, you know. You need to love people, you need to help them, but you need to help them in the best way possible. Sometimes people have grown up in broken situations, they don't know how to work these days, they don't know how to come alongside them and say, listen, there's some things I want to help you with, but there's some things I need to tell you first. And give them a challenge. I've had people say, hey, do you have, no, we we can't just give you that and that, but if you do some work, we can help you out with some food. Give them an opportunity to have it with dignity. Build some responsibility in their life, Amen. Again, there is a danger of having too much. The Bible says in the book of Nehemiah, as well as in other Old Testament passages, that people forgot God because they were overly abundant in their blessings. We've got to be careful, friends. This week, I want, you to, I want all of us to pray this. Lord, give us this day our daily bread. God, you have provided food in my cabinet. You have provided food in my stomach. You have blessed me. And I recognize this morning, all these blessings have come from your hand. You are a generous God that I would have none of this without you. Thank you for the job you've provided for me. Help me to be a good worker. Help me to be faithful, to even give to those in need. Lord, of you and through you and to you are all things. Let you belongs the glory. Unto you belongs the praise. Let's be careful to give him praise and worship for what he's provided. And if you're in a place of need, God, help me to be faithful what you've provided for me. Lord, help me to carve off any wants to live a needs-based life if that's necessary for a season. I'm going to tell you, God doesn't keep you in a needs-based life all your life, but he, he's, you, you'll go through those seasons on purpose. And you will never get, I believe that if I was not faithful 20 years ago in a needs-based life, I would never be the pastor of Lighthouse today. I would never be here. Because Jesus said, unless you're faithful with little, you will never be faithful with much. 
You have to start where you are and say, God, help me to be faithful. So when we raise our kids, we, raise, we need to teach them these things. Amen? It's not what the world's teaching. The world's teaching covetousness through the 40,000 on average commercials people see every day or every year in their life. Promoting covetousness. We've got to carve that off, friends. Come back to this. Let our prayer be Proverbs 30, verse 8, 9 as I close. Proverbs 30, verse 8, 9 says, Remove far from me vanity and lies. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with food convenient for me, lest I be full and deny thee and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and take the name of my God in vain. God is our provider. He calls us to work. He calls us to not spend our money foolishly. And He calls us to not live in unrepentant sin. And He will provide for you. He he has obligated Himself to you. What a joy that is. What a joy that is. This week, apply these things to our life. Let us be people of prayer. This Wednesday, I'm going to be teaching on prayer again. I can encourage you to come and learn how to grow in your prayer life. Pray for your family. Get up tomorrow. If you're not in that accustomed state of doing that, get up, set at least 10 minutes aside to spend that time in prayer. Above all things, God is not only our provider physically, but friends, he's, he's our provider spiritually. Jesus came down to earth and he said, I am the bread from heaven that he who partakes of him would have everlasting life. Today, if you stood before God, do you know if heaven's your home? Today, you could receive that bread of life and be saved today. I'll be up front. We'll have men and women who could talk with you after the service. They would love to share with you how you can know you would have eternal life through the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's all stand this morning. With heads bowed, nights closed, the altar is opened. You're welcome to come. Maybe you just want to come and spend some time thanking God for what he's provided. Maybe you want to come and take a moment to Seek Him in some area of life. Maybe there's an area of your life that you need to commit to Him, surrender to Him. Maybe there's a spiritual decision that you need to make. I would encourage you to come. Maybe you're going through that needs-based time right now. And I can tell you, it's a whole lot easier to preach about than to live through. It was, there was nothing fun about it for me. There's no fun in those seasons of life. It is pressure. It is strain. It is worry. It is fear. But it's in those seasons that God is teaching us to trust Him. Man doesn't live by bread only, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Will God care for me? Maybe you just need to come and spend some time in prayer and re-engage your faith in God's provision. If you're here today and you say, Pastor, I don't know if heaven's my home, could you pray for me? Because if I stood before God, I don't know if heaven's my home. With heads bowed and eyes closed, if that's you today, would you just raise your hand that I might know to pray for you? Pastor, could you remember me in prayer? I'm not sure if heaven's my home. I'm not sure if I'm saved. I'm sure would want to know that. Let's raise your hand this morning. Love to pray for you. Thank you, I see you. Thank you, thank you. Father, we just want to praise you for your mercy, your love, and your grace. God, I pray that you would do a great work in our hearts. Help us to be people of prayer. Help us to be people who early and often seek your face. Lord, provide for those in need. Help us to be faithful with what you provided for us. We rejoice in you as our provider. Save the lost today. Dear God, give them courage to come and trust in you. We ask it in Jesus' name.